Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sephora stores are everywhere you are. So just pop in when you need a brown lip to match your 90s playlist. A confidence boost before your interview? Or a last-minute gift for mom's birthday? There's always a Sephora near you. Just pop in. Use our store locator to find your local Sephora or Sephora at Kohl's. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Roy Barznes. I am host of the channel. And today I get the privilege of interviewing Dr. Stephen Knobloch on his most recent work, Bodies and Rhythms, Navigating Unconscious Vulnerability and Emotional Fluidity, published uh, by Rutledge this year in 2021. This is Stephen's third book, having offered The Musical Edge of Therapeutic Dialogue in 2000 and co-authoring Forms of Inner Subjectivity in Research and Adult Treatment. Stephen has a very uh, interesting background, and I want to um, introduce you to him and not uh, keep out any of uh, of the interesting background that he comes from and is risked, actually, and chosen, and how that's influenced his work. But um, he began his work with individuals and groups as an undergraduate volunteer with the Community Involvement Council of the University of Pennsylvania in the late 1960s, working with potential gang members and involving them in alternative, creative, and recreational activities. He also served as a student representative on a committee to support the development of the first Black Studies program at the University of Pennsylvania. In 1970, he moved to New York City, pursuing a dual career as a jazz musician and working for the Roosevelt uh, Hospital Community Mental Health Service in welfare hotels on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. During this period, he also worked in group home and treatment program uh, settings. When finishing his graduate studies, Dr. Knobloch coordinated the psychological services at The Door, a multi-service treatment model program from 1975 through 1981. From 81 through 88, he headed up a unit that provided training and consultative services to organizations throughout the five continents interested in replicating the program and service delivery strategies for adolescents that the DOOR represented as a project of the United Nations, the International Center for Integrative Studies. Following the attack of 9-11 in New York City, he was recruited to serve as a clinical liaison and consultant from the New York postdoctoral program. Uh, with Feel the Music, a program of music and art workshops offered for surviving family members to facilitate recovery and resilience. 
In addition to his professional activities in treatment, education, and training, Dr. Nabla continues to play jazz saxophone and study Brazilian percussion traditions, integrating these experiences into his teaching and practices. I met Steve several years ago when I invited him to conduct a seminar for the Relational Perspective Guest Lecture Series at the institution where I teach. Not only was the teaching rich, but Steve embodies his body, his very being, his presence when you are with him. Uh, and so I was also pleased that when I wrote my book, uh, Core Competence, that Steve was willing to submit a chapter in my book on uh, patterning and linking and utilizing his musicality and his uh, psychoanalytic thinking on how, where, and how we come to understand our patients. As we were talking before the podcast, <clears throat> um, Steve, to me, uh, embody, as I you kind of embody the whole idea of the body, like it really penetrates uh, him. And when I read him, it does that to me too. It reminds me in my sometimes cognitive analytic mind to get back to the basics, which is my body and to feel my patients and attend to all the micro uh, movements um, and attunement and, and attune to that which is happening within my body on, in response to this patient. I was telling him that early in my career, I was uh, exposed to uh, Erwin Singer and his book, Key Concepts in Psychotherapy. And I was really struck um, with Singer when he said, pay attention to your viscera. And so viscera has accompanied me in my work for all of these years. And when I think of Steve, I think this is a man who understands something like that. And so Steve, welcome uh, to this uh, podcast. I'm so pleased you'd be here. And what I'm just saying here is how much I appreciate you and how you locate your theories and practices and how they emerge from your very own being, your body, your heritage, and your own talents. Like when I read you, I know that you're a jazz, jazz man. You, there's a movement, there's a nuancing, there's a playing off of, and uh, it's just uh, really uh, fun for me. And your work is very heady, but it's deeply grounded in who you are. And so I wonder if you can tell us a bit about who you are and how your very being is ever present in your work as a theorist and as a practitioner. Well, it's hard to, it's hard to add to what you already have offered, but um, I'll, I'll touch on a few things that I think are important um, in terms of who I am and who I've become. Uh, and, and I think one is that uh, I was born into a neighborhood. I was born to parents, but obviously living in a a lower uh, a lower class working uh, working class working class neighborhood. But it was a tough neighborhood. I mean, I was uh, I mentioned in my book that I was introduced into physical fights. In, I was initiated at three years old when uh, I and my best friend were forced by the older boys to face off, and um, so uh, I've always. This naturally, uh, from those times, been probably as attuned as anybody to uh, embodied signals of safety or danger. Um, and I think that uh, that's been very helpful because from the moment a patient walks into the office, uh, into the consulting space, I, I feel that I'm communicating something to them. Uh, with or without words, they surely are commuting, communicating something to me with or without words. And uh, that kind of experience that I had as a child, which was a bit traumatic, to put it mildly, um, you know, has ultimately with several good analyses helped me to um, 
uh, harness that experience in a constructive way. I, I think also uh, that led me to become an ath- athletically involved. I played a, a lot of basketball. Where I grew up, there wasn't much to do. So, you know, you either sat on a stoop or you found something like basketball where you got in a lot of trouble. Um, for me, I played a lot of basketball. And uh, and that's very fast moving and uh, unpredictable, a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, everything's on the line all the time. You're either winning or losing. And uh, I think that that was a major factor in my development, developing my sensibilities. And then I think that's probably why I got uh, attracted to jazz. Also being, you know, uh, going to a high school where 70% of the uh, student body was African-American. So there was a lot of natural stuff happening around rhythm and blues and, and uh, doo-wop and jazz. Um, and the thing about jazz that's so great is, of course, you don't know what you're going to do next, even though you've had a lot of experience doing it. But if you if you get too repetitive, it's really it's not real. It's just, you know, it's like faking it. Um, and the real thing is to be vulnerable, to be uncertain and to respond. But you get you get a real clear sense of what to do, how to play from the way things are happening around you. So. I think that was as as important to my training as anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and so you introduced to us um, through that history of yours and and the basketball and the um, the jazz. You introduced terms uh, such as attending to subtle embodied cues, matching and mismatching, fluidity, navigating, recognition, non recognition tending to micro-moments of multiple affective states, patterning and linking. And your use of poly- polyrhythmic weaving, a non-Western jazz musical concept that you refer to in your book, you know, that does not privilege, as you say in your book, the primary beat, but privileges a meter that is fluid and recognizing and valuing contrasting rhythms in such a powerful metaphor in your work. Do I have that correct about in terms of polyrhythmic reading, uh, weaving and how you've also chosen language in your theory around uh, very much from from this idea of where you come from. Yeah. Well, um, I, I might say it a little differently. I wouldn't say there's a primary beat. Um, polyrhythmic, uh, which I've learned very well from um, my Brazilian teacher who uh, grew up in a favela and at 14 years old was trained and recruited into one of the most popular uh, samba, uh, samba reggae groups in the world, Chimbalada by Carlinos Brown, who's a kind of superstar over in um, in Brazil, but also was a person who was very, very much of a community activist. And he actually developed his group out of uh, young people in the neighborhood. And then with the success of the group, developed all kinds of educational training experiences. And the neighborhood is now no longer much of a favela. It's much more uh, sort of middle class. But I, 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 what I learned is that it's not there, that there's a primary beat, that there are a number of beats and they weave together. And so um, if you try to find the center, you get lost or, or you follow, you go one way and then you miss everything else that's happening. So there's a way in which you kind of have to sort of stay open and, and take in, you know, you, you kind of, you know, find the right kind of 
what do they say? Uh, you know, in music they say getting into the groove or feeling the vibe. You know, I was reading something that Racker wrote in 1968 in his Transference and Countertransference book. Most people only read the chapter, you know, the famous chapter, but one of the other parts of the book talks about tuning into the patient's vibration. And I was thinking, eh, you must have been listening to the Beach Boys or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But that, that is a, a real marker in your work, right? Listening to the vibrations of the patient. And you. Yeah. And, there, and knowing that there, there are multiple strands, we're all woven out of many different influences. And to try to not be too seduced into formulating or knowing, thinking that I know things, even though it's just a knee-jerk inevitable thing that we do. And, you know, having been privileged to go to an Ivy League school coming out of Jersey City where I grew up, uh, it was a traumatic couple of years before I adjusted. But I learned to um, to uh, use the, 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 the discourses of sociology, psychology, philosophy, history. So um, now the challenge is how to, you know, avoid uh, getting locked into discursive um, prisons, you know. And I do that. I think we all do that. We use words and we fall in love with them. So polyrhythmic is one that we could fall in love with. And they can be elucidating, but they also can be confusing and um, misleading. Um, they can, they can, appear to represent something when they might oversimplify it and reduce it. And I'm always, in chapter three of my book, I talk about, uh, I, I call it found in translation, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> yeah, say more about that. I like it. Well, I, I was starting to speak about it. I, I think that words sort of have at least two registers. One is, they're representations of very complex experiences. And in that representing or symbolizing function, they reduce things. They lose things. They lose dimensions. Uh, I mean, it's like it's like describing sex versus having sex. I mean, you realize there's, there's something lost going from one to the other, from the lived experience to the, the description. At the same time, words are embodied. I mean, uh, a particular word can evoke... Uh, a, a tremendous emotional response and uh, it can do that in terms of its familiarity or its unfamiliarity it also can do that in terms of the the volume the tone the pitch the cadence of how it's pronounced so it's complex stuff yeah um so what i hear in that and i wanted to ask you if you could say more about your idea of re-present with the re-present um and one of the uh, I don't know if you know the, I think, 11th century mystic Meister Eckhart, but he one of his things is, I pray to God to rid me of God. And so it's sort of what I hear you saying of, I got a term here, but as soon as I reify it, I'm going to lose it. And so how can I keep re, re, re how can keep re, <laughs> keep presenting itself in a new way and not in a reified way? And I think that's what I'm hearing you say, right? Yeah, and it's very difficult. Um, it's challenging, but it's not impossible. Um, and what makes it possible is others. Mm. Uh, because I think we, we constantly bring a kind of uh, 
a, a sense of surprise, a sense of unknownness. Steve Mitchell wrote about this in his last book, Can Love Last, where he suggested it's not familiarity. Uh, the, 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 the traditional idea of familiarity breeds contempt that, that, that gets in the way of um, uh, difficulties in, you know, um, connecting uh, emotionally with another. What gets in the way is the more we get to know uh, another, the, the more we realize how much we don't know the other. Yeah, that's nice. And um, I think our challenge as analysts is to recognize that we're, we're going to find that place in ourselves and in our patients where that fear is, is, is um, evoked. And then to stay in that fear um, in the way that Winnicott, you know, talks about um, surviving annihilation, you know, mm. mm-hmm. it, it's a, it's a fear of annihilation actually. Um, yeah. But I think that, that, that uncertainty, um, vulnerability is not easy. You know, I can preach it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. But uh, I don't practice it any better than anybody else. It's, it's very right. difficult, but I think we all, you know, when I think of my colleagues' work, the best work comes in those moments when, not when we think we know, but when we know that we don't know. Yeah. And then we open yeah. ourselves up to something new emerging. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what am I hearing that is when we think we know our patients, um, in a sense, we've lost them, right? Because we've now limited to, oh, this is what they are. And this is the idea, the problem sometimes with interpretation versus dialogue, or the relational dialogue that was introduced, where we're, oh, in fact, you say something about this in the book, and I'd like you to say more about it. The idea of containment, that containment shuts the, the, the fluidity uh, down. But say, can you say more about that, actually? Well, I think it's, it's, it's kind of riding that wave of paradox uh, that, that we're trying to get at as we try to use words together to, to, uh, evoke this, uh, this experience. Um, and I, I think that it's very important. I mean, clearly we need to have orientation and we need to have, uh, uh, cognitive awareness of our place and relationship to each other in, in our communities, professional, social. Um, but every time we kind of have, um, a dimension of our identity sort of locking in it it has the potential and often does uh block further growth um you know there was a definition of masculinity in 1954 that changed in 1964 that changed in 1974 etc and it keeps changing um and and who i think i am in relationship to that definition or you know, the definition that I think I have of it keeps changing. Um, but at the same time, we need those anchors. We need, need those oriented places, placements. You know, we, we place ourselves socially, racially, ethnically, um, professionally. You know, I'm, a, I'm an early career development. I'm a senior, uh, you know, teaching person or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think that's what I... Um... In, in, in the first question I had around you is that um, the beauty of your 
work to me is that you have reflected upon your your Stephenness, if you will, like you, where you come from, what you're, what you are, who you are, what your talents are, and and that's that idea. I think of we to be able to be a good musician or improvisationalist, we can't do that unless we know where we stand. And one of the things that I know I'm teaching a lot about these days is in order to, to do this work, you have to be located. You've got to know your, you've got to have not know yourself, but receive yourself. And, and in that, then you can be dislocated by the, by the music of your patient or by the things that begin to come your way or change you. And I think that's what's striking to me in your writings and in your personhood is you kind of know who you are. And by being there, you're able to be shifted around a bit. <laughs> That's interesting. I have to think about that. But I, I think for sure that uh, however you uh, achieve it to the degree possible, um, the key is to, to be open to that shift. Um, and I, I think, it, you know, it, I don't know whether it's more difficult. I think it's more difficult on two ends of the spectrum when you become too overwhelmed with trauma or when you become uh, too overwhelmed with power. Um, I think those are two things which can uh, significantly get in the way of that openness and that can continuing to change, uh, the need to continually change. And the richness of, of uh, emotional, interpersonal, uh, collective experience that comes from that ability to, to, to ride the wave of, of, um, of unfolding life. Yeah, yeah. When we were, um, um, and before I want to go into that, is there anything else you want to say to the listener about the body and its and its role within um, doing a tra- in treatment? Because hmm. so often we, I believe, um, are cut off at and. Psychotherapy in general is traffic sort of as a cognitive exercise. That's right. It's and you are coming. Yeah. Yeah. And you are coming and saying, ah, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it begins in the body. Uh, and I'm wondering if you want to say and help help us understand more of this powerful idea. Well, I think. Um, to us. Yeah. I guess uh, if you think of what you just said as uh, psychotherapy emerging in you know in the in the Americas, um, out of the psychoanalytic movement in Europe, and Freud's initial uh, technique, which was to try to make us aware of what we're unaware of because of shame or guilt, um, then um, we start with a real powerful focus on uh, consciousness and on cognitive functioning. Um, and and we've moved, and I know that in my lifetime there's been so many um, related therapies that have developed a lot of body-based therapies where people manipulate the body or bring attention to the body. M- my sense is, I guess, somewhere uh, I'm not, I'm not. I think there's value to to that work, but I I'm saying that in our work of helping a patient to face into the trauma that's keeping them from living more fully, um, that attending to their body and the, the micro dimensions of that, their gaze, does it meet your gaze? Does it 
avert your gaze? Does it go to the floor? Does it go to the ceiling? Um, their, their facial expression, you know, um, how, uh, frozen is it? How evocative is it? How, uh, evocative of, uh, sadness or, or laughter, humor, um, and their movement, you know, a lot of people speak with their hands and, uh, they move their head and lean forward and back and breathing. We're aware of breathing and pace. Some people take, you know, very fast and, and they're in the when they talk and other people really do something, you know, like this, you know, with a little pickup in staccato. And most of us are moving back and forth or, you know, through different versions of that and it very it gives a lot of information about how we're feeling and so not that we should just pay attention to my emphasis is not just pay attention to our patients but to pay attention to ourselves because one thing we've learned from relational psychoanalysis and the interpersonalists and even from freud with the idea of transference and countertransference is that what we're experiencing is very much influenced by what our patient is experiencing. Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, everything that we experience is projected into us from our patients. Some of it might be. It's worth wondering. It's worth wondering if my chest begins to tighten, whether I'm picking up something in my patients, you know, becoming fearful and becoming uh, a bit more constricted. And I think those wonderings are good. Uh, I'm not a big fan of saying, well, my the back of my neck started to, to hurt, so it made me think of my patient's potential sexual abuses. You know, I, I wouldn't make it so concrete, but I would wonder, you know, what does this mean? Is this something that, that uh, we're, we're getting into together? And that's what I'm feeling, like when you get into the water and it's cold or it's warm. So that's that's the value of attention to our bodies and we're we're um it's not easy you know and we're not trained to do it for the most part in our psychoanalytic institutes yeah and in general in general psychology either because when you were talking um <clears throat> you were talking about you know watching observing our patient's body right mm-hmm. but the the thing that that is a is that you add to all of that is as we're attending to that patient's body, we're not objectifying them in a sense and saying that's what they're doing. We're saying, how is their my my experience of their body now finding itself in my body? That's right. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's really powerful, isn't it? But it's what a major shift because in so many ways we're we're saying, oh, the patient must be feeling this because their their eyebrow did that. And you're saying, no, how did that eyebrow hit you? And what might that have to do with the patient? There's right. a whole paradigm shift in terms of uh, of the work. Um, that eyebrow, eyebrow raise might have all of a sudden alerted me, you know, drawn my attention in a direction I, I would have not gone if I was just thinking, what is the patient saying? What is the patient meaning? And not paying attention to the patient's eyebrow. Yep. And another aspect of re- relationality and that I also hear in your work is that we're also being read. Our bodies are being read. All the time. And how do we invite the patient 
to be able to speak about what they're reading, right? That's right. That's right. And that's very complex because often you cannot have a conversation with words about that. You have to allow it to unfold um, because the patient uh, could easily not be with you. You have to go slowly. Like, what are you talking about? You know, they might feel attacked, uh, accused. Um, and um, so it, it's a, it's an interesting process. Uh, it takes a lot of patience, but it t- takes a lot of uh, careful vigilance. Um, but, you know, like any other kind of uh, practice, if you do it enough, you can relax into it and it becomes something that, that is easier the more you do it. Actually, absolutely, right? And I think people forget that when we all started learning how to be clinicians, it wasn't easy. And, no. you know, all you have to do is supervise somebody who's in there, you know, still not, you know, in their gra- graduate level. And you realize how many things that you take for granted that they're still learning. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like, you know, I also think in terms of music, it's like playing guitar or saxophone. The more you do it, the more things come into your awareness that you can do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Taking me all the way back to my dissertation where I was uh, evaluating what I would, my, my subjects were um, teachers teaching in the uh, people's Republic of China, just after it opened up. And uh, the only scale of all of the scales that I offered them through the 16PF, the MMPI, et cetera, that actually had any kind of meaning um, was the idea of intuition. The uh, people who value, who are high on the intuition scale had more success in the first six months in another culture than if they uh, were using their cognitions. And I think that's what you're, as we develop that comfortability with like, let me intuit my way through this to improvise and to play we're going to be a lot more um yeah going to be an easier yeah. job in a way and a much yeah. more rich one yeah two things um one is it's not th- this idea is an original i'm 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 i hope expanding and extending ideas such as winnicott's idea of play which is so powerful mm-hmm. um and also uh the point you made about uh well maybe three points the second being to intuit is really, um, I don't know if we really have a good translation of what that means. No, I agree. I think it has something to do with being touched by the other person. Um, mm, I, you know, I mentioned mm-hmm. Bruce Reese's idea that um, embodied uh, uh, embodied communication, what the uh, infinite researchers talk about on these micro dimensions, micro moment dimensions of shifting of gaze or accent or pause in speech mm-hmm. that, that, uh, that he calls that the patient's address, you know, the patient's address. Yes. And, it, and it, it's, it's a kind, it's not only a way of saying in, in the interaction, this is who I am. This is what I'm working on. This is what I'm traumatized by. Mm-hmm. It's also an invitation. Yeah. An invitation like, and it's saying, are you are you wanting to do this? Do you really want to pay attention to me? You really want to go here with me? Yeah. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yes i like that word and and uh, when i read it in your book with reese and um the idea of being addressed and is will we respond to the invitation and i think something that grieves me a bit in psychotherapy is often in our own fears and anxieties when a patient says here i am we go well, stay right there. <laughs> um, I'm not, I will, I want to take control of the invitation now, as opposed to, well, what are you inviting me to? Right. Well, that, that gets to uh, an issue which I address in the number of the clinical examples. I think I illustrated uh, um, actually in, in, in the clinical examples in each of the chapters, pretty much, which is that a key issue in, in, um, in the work is when the patient feels uh, a sense of power and in order to do that they have to feel that in relationship to us that means that we are not the one who has the power in those moments right right they're directing what happens they're they have more of an influence on how we feel than we have on how they feel although it's fluid you know Mm -hmm. it could happen in a, a tenth of a second or it could happen over, you know, five or ten sessions. Yeah. Um, so uh, again, there's there's uncertainty, there's vulnerability there, which is, you know, these are my my uh, battle cries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to take us to. I I, I want to make sure we get to the uh, section of the last chapter of the book because that is a wild chapter, I must say. Mm-hmm. But I know in our one of our last co- co- uh, correspondence, you had just finished a webinar with IR. That's and right. you were yeah. very excited about it and said that ideas were flowing out of you. And I know of that experience when, when we speak. And in fact, this is a good example that if we are engaged in our speaking events, uh, what, uh, we become immersed in it and we receive back far much more than what we even prepared when we went, right? And so you said your mind was just flowing. So I kind of don't want to interrupt that flow and let you riff for a moment. On okay. um, what did you experience during that webinar, and what do you want to bring to us? I think uh, it was kind of like a, um, a microcosm of uh, my career, <laughs> uh, nice. uh, and I think it, it's something that is uh, more or less universal. And that was uh, the frustration uh, uh, of not being able to really find words, which the whole book, my whole career, and I think all of our careers, all of our theorizing. And, and even um, when we just work with 
local theories with our patients. What does this mean? You know, how do you say it? How do I say it? That, that something is always getting lost in translation. Yeah. And um, it was interesting, mm-hmm. people in the webinar, and of course, these are analysts from all over the world who, who are interested in this, they chose to be in, in the webinar. Right. You know, we're struggling with what the different meanings of some of these words like polyrhythmicity, or when I used, um, you know, words from Franz Fanon, like uh, lactification or um, uh, petrification. Um, right. Uh, what, what do they mean? And um, how well do they really capture what they're trying to represent or represent? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it became so clear because here were, you know, there were about 75 folks who really were motivated. I mean, you, can you imagine having a class of 75 people who want to be there? <laughs> um, sometimes we get seminars of three, four, five, eight, you know, um, and, uh, and there was a lot of difficulty with that. And, and I, I, I was challenged to try to walk away from those words, which uh, I have a kind of love affair with, um, yeah. as I've learned them or helped to develop them. And, um, and try to just speak in terms of uh, lived experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is what I think I, if I, if I could judge myself, I think I do that better when I start narrating a clinical moment, mm-hmm. like you did in chapter chapter four with, or not in the chapter four, chapter seven, I think it is, right with Anon. Well, that's six. Yeah, yeah, but yes. Yeah. So. I want to ask you a couple things. Um, one is, um, what for for the um, for the person who's going to pick up this book and they're going to go to chapter six, mm-hmm. they're going to go, "Holy Moses, what do I do with these words?" So why don't you do your best at breaking down epidermal epidermalization and petrification? Latification and phantomization. <laughs> Come on, Steve. Oh, Give us a break. Do I have 15 <laughs> weeks? And uh, no, you have, uh, you have uh, one, two, there's four words. You get uh, uh, four seconds on each one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, uh, these are, uh, I get talk about translation. These are the, the English translators of the French uh, original language that Fanon used, which was not uh his original language as he was born in martinique um, right and so uh this is the best i can do as to what he was meaning in the way i use it let's see uh let me start with epidermalization because sure. um, uh this brings us into the, the other part of the book bodies and social rhythms uh mm-hmm. the social being uh i think it's to use a term that uh, the uh, African philosopher uh, writer Shil Mbembe uses, I think to talk about the social, we need to think not of linearity, nonlinearity, but reticularity, which is the way mm-hmm. that finer and finer networks exist in which we are an active part. We are okay. so rather than think of identity as some kind of cohesive coming together to think in terms of all the different fine network ways in which we are experiencing ourselves and experienced by others. 
I was talking about this with Stephen Hartman the other day, and he pointed out something that Katie Gentile always reminds us of is that um, when we talk about ourselves in our in our world, we forget that we don't pay attention to the the inanimate world, what we call the inanimate world, which is really actually very alive. And mm-hmm. for example, we think of politics, we think of gender, we think of race. We don't think of the fact that honeybees, without honeybees, we all might be dead. Right, right. Yeah. So the epidermalization is the idea that uh, the color of skin becomes a marker of subjectivity and a very powerful one because for people who don't have white skin, uh, they have been considered historically by people who do as inferior. Um, and even though some of us, many of us are, have been educated to think of that, well, that was a, that was an, an inaccurate anthropological mistake, which the anthropologists corrected themselves in the late 19th century, it, it, that those kinds of thinking and the political and economic and social implications of that still live on in our lives, often unconsciously even. Well, so if I understand that, that correctly, uh, the idea epide- epidermalization is is a particularity within a network. It's a particular way in which one becomes uh, uh, marked, um, yeah, and stereotyped. Okay, yeah, okay. all right. In the same way that we might do it with gender. Oh, she's a woman, of course. He's a, oh, he's a man, of course. Yeah. And then we, you know, we have this general stereotypic you know oh he's from africa oh she's from asia you know Mm. and we and and that's supposed to mean that we understand a whole lot of things that are true of everybody you know who's who's ethnically or gender or racially or other you know socioeconomically class you know I come from Jersey City, so what do you expect? You know, kind of thing. Right, 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 exactly. And yeah. I had to live with that for a long time, feeling like oh, I didn't deserve to be respected because, look, I, you know, I didn't know what the heck was going on. I came from Jersey yeah. City. Yeah. So that's that's the epidermological. The, uh, petrification. Petrification. What Phenom meant by that is, is, and I think it's really important, it's not the same thing that we mean uh, when we talk about um, – dissociation. He, he talked about uh, the way that the kinds of beliefs and practices which make up and, and then which, which permeate the discourse, the language, uh, lead to uh, a kind of freezing and a deadening of possibility yeah. for someone who's been abjected. Yeah. So that could yeah. be a woman. It could be a child. It could be a person of a different race. Well, and it also comes back, I think, to our earlier conversation, even around words, where how we will petrify um, our own traditions, our own cultures. That's right. Um, And we become denominational and um, categorical and all those things. Good. Right. Right. Lactification. Sounds like Kleinian breastfeeding. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) you can. Lactification came from one of his. Translators, I think it was in the latter. There are two major translations, and I'm not remembering the names of the translator. But in Black Skin, White Masks, which is probably, well, it's one of the two most influential books by Franz Fanon, and the one that has so much 
that can speak to psychoanalysts and psychotherapists, uh, particularly about race and about identity, about recognition. Um, uh, he's pretty good with that. And um, the idea of lactification was that there's this belief unconsciously often carried uh, through social uh, norms by both the, the colonizer and the colonized or the oppressor and the oppressed, uh, the one who's more powerful, the one who's less powerful, but they both share the belief that to be white is best and that to be not white is to be inferior. Yeah. There, there there's a, a couple of uh, folks in our field, Eng and Han, who wrote a book uh, about uh, Asian uh Asians uh, in Asian immigration, and they talked about the the Asian attempt to assimilate, um, mm. and the, they used a, a, a description which I I think they may have even used these words where the Asian would feel they would assimilate, they would be successful in so many ways, but and so they would consider themselves white but not quite. Yeah, and just the fact that you have to have that as a marker, you know. Yeah. And and yeah. let's let's face it, it's in many cultures there are, there are those kinds of markers, um, yeah. but that's what he meant. Uh, that's what they meant by he meant by lactification. That both the, the to, uh, colonizer and the colonized be- believe yeah. that you know that and are haunted by that. Yeah, Toni Morrison said, uh, "In this country, American means white. Everybody else has to hyphenate," and mm. that kind of takes us to what you're saying. I think. Yeah. We yeah. don't think of ourselves as Euro-Americans. No. No, it's the... Con- yeah. So, phantomization. Fan- this is... this is. L- let me thank people like uh, the young Daniel Butler, whose who's name is just kind of uh, breaking in psychoanalytic theor- theories, wrote an incredible paper about this. And... Uh, uh, well, let me... It was basically his his distinction between fantasy, the fantastic, and the phantomatic. So fantasy is something that we carry in our imaginations, right? It's it's yeah. our it's our uh, way of representing things, uh, and it, it sometimes has a has more or less verticality with uh, social with lived experience, but we. we we speak of fantasy, it's Kleinian notion. The phantomatic is the idea that um, something is there. Uh, but and I, is, think, I think here, I, to point out to our listeners, because they can't see it, but it's the PH phantomatic, right, that you're talking, right, and not right. the fantastic FA, right? right? Like phantom, yeah. phantom, as yeah. opposed to phantasm. Um, right. And the phantom is a presence of an absence. It, uh, yeah. Francisco Gonzalez, in discussing uh, Daniel's work, calls it like a phantom limb effect. Yeah. So we have sense that something there, but it's 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 not there. Yeah. We have a sense of some of the of the presence of absence. That's the best way to yeah. put it. In, yeah, that's in good. I think of. And what uh, Fanon is saying is that when he when he worked with his patients, and he was very interested very influenced by Freud and he read Freud and Jung and uh, uh, Lacan. He was very influenced by Lacan. He, he was saying that I just, 
Uh, my work is not just to have the patient remember, it's to remember their history, the history mm-hmm. which has been amputated through a kind of petrification process yeah. so that it exists phantomatically. And there are people like Kirkland Vaughn and Kathy Polk White and others who are African-American uh, colleagues of ours who write about the presence of slavery the presence of slavery, of the history of slavery, in yeah. not just in, in the consciousness and unconscious of patients of color, but also all of us. Yeah. And of course, now it, it's more out there also in the social, sociopolitical discourses. So good. So in this uh, chapter, uh, in our last few minutes that we have, yeah. you talk about this patient. And one of the powerful things, given these terms, by the way, that's really you just did a good teaching <laughs> uh, on that chapter. So good, Try, good job. Well, tried to translate. <laughs> yeah, good job. Uh, but um, one of the things that struck me that is so important to me in uh, our culture and race relations, et cetera, is a concept that you're, inter- uh, not, I, I'm going to say introducing there, is the concept of non-recognition. Um, that is powerful to me in terms of advancing our conversations, uh, not only in psychotherapy. I would say that basically all psychoanalysis is a misread, uh, and we're trying to get a better read. And if we could apply that to culture as well, but you know, we have um, cultural competency classes and what have you, and it's just like that's, basically that doesn't work, and it's it's a it's a mis misrecognition. And you introduced to us the power of transformation through non-recognition in this, in this chapter. I loved it. And I'm wondering if you could uh, tell us a bit uh, briefly about the case and how you came to understand that concept within this case. Well, I have to say, uh, let me give credit to uh, reading uh, the recent work of Sally Swartz, who is very uh, from South Africa, psychoanalyst from South Africa. Mm. It's really, you know, I've been in, in, um, ongoing uh, dialogue with Sally and, and her ideas have really been helpful. And um, and the other place where uh, I've been helped is actually uh, in uh, toward the end of Black Skin, White Masks, Fanon discusses Hegel and he talks about recognition, uh, recognition of the black man. And I think it applies to almost every group that feels somewhat uh, othered. Um, you know, a person with a, a physical disability or, um, you know, ADHD. Uh, yeah. I, I work with a lot of patients who feel very um, less than human with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, and also race uh, and gender. And what Fanon said is in order to recognize, it, the recognition that Hegel describes is recognition in terms of the one who has the power. It's recognition in, 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 in terms mm. of their discourse. So, you know, uh, I might say, uh, well, you can, um, you know, you're, you're pretty strong physically, but um, you're not, you know, you're not that good with mathematics. So I don't think as much of you. But, um, you know, why is one more significant than the other? They're both very important. And, you know, we all... Or somewhere on a, on a continuum with, with regard to both of them. So his main point was that recognition seems to always be culturally contextualized. In, mm-hmm. in whose terms are we being recognized? Yeah. 
And um, this is one of the, you know, the limitations. Uh, it doesn't take anything away from Jessica's great, Jessica Benjamin's great uh, theorizing about recognition um, and about um, the doer and the done to. But the question then arises in what context, with what terms, you know? Yeah. And so, for example, to make it a little bit more concrete, a patient who is uh, getting angry and is often interpreted as resisting may, yeah. in fact, be, be, be expressing some kind of uh, liberating vitality to express their agency that you have generated for them. Right, right. You have not made them angry. You've given them the power. You've given over your power to to allow them a wider range of their emotional expression and saying, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be destroyed. You know, as Winnicott points out, the, mo- the good uh-huh. mother, the, the appropriate mothering response is not to be annihilated. Right. Taking, taking the message. Uh you know, and then we could go to all kinds of other, you know, alpha, alpha, beta, you know, beyond ideas. But to to realize that recognition is is very tricky, can be culturally yeah. relative, and that all. Well, I was going to say that non-recognition can be more powerful. To exactly. accept that you don't understand the other person is to give them that agency of yep. being opaque. Yeah. This is something that uh, Edward Glissant, who's a, an amazing uh, writer from the um, Caribbean, writes about opacity. Mm-hmm. And we, we don't generally value that. We, you know, you, you really have to see everything and understand everything. And, yeah. uh, and you should be open. Well, yeah. I mean, we don't walk around naked. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's the same kind of thing uh, that um, – I, I fight against a little bit. It was the idea of rupture and repair. It's like we get it all good. We get it, we have a rupture, but we make it good. And we make it good because from my context, I saw you. And what was powerful about your case is the, the non-recognition. I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit about how that happened between you and your patient and how it was, how it had, it feels like it's still in process. But Yeah, I, I think it's unfolding. But the, the particular micro moment that I described was when, um, I, I was, uh, it was very mundane. The patient was struggling with some decision with his, uh, then, uh, uh, girlfriend about, uh, where to live. And I was, you know, focusing in on, well, let's look at some strategies. And, you know, at one point he just looked at me, he said, you don't get it. You know, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm black, you know, where yeah. I live as a black person has a lot to do with it. I mean, yeah. I'm paraphrasing it. Yeah, yeah. And rather than fight him or apologize, I just, you know, I could, I just took in my, my body's response to that. And I felt that in retrospect, and you know, in the moment I had no capacity for reflection other than to pause. But I, I felt my pause probably reflected a kind of place where I couldn't place myself where he's trying to show me that he can't place himself. And his observation of my struggle more than anything else, I think was uh, communicated that he had impacted me, that I, I, there was nothing I could say, nothing I could do other than um, a 
allow him to experience my loss of professional, you know, um, equilibrium, maybe, Yeah, you know, and uh, it gave him a sense of his own power. And, you know, as I mentioned, without going into a lot of detail, subsequently and continuing to this day, he's increasingly uh, come into come into awareness and expression of his own agency in so many different yeah. ways. Yeah. What's coming to my mind, uh, Steve, is um, you're not getting it. Got it. <laughs> so in a weird, weird way, non-recognition becomes recognition and empowering. Yeah. You could. He felt yeah. seen. I mean, this he felt is, seen. Yeah, those yeah. words work as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. We're trying. I'm trying. Well, Steve, uh, it's been wonderful to be together. And I'm wondering if you have any last words for the uh, for the listeners of the uh, podcast today. Well, um, let's see. If I step back from everything we're talking about today, I would say, hmm, yeah, well, a word comes to mind. <laughs> um, I would say that a word that we need to allow into our lexicon as as, uh, clinicians, as helpers, people wanting to rescue folks suffering uh, in trauma is struggle. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't expect, and in fact, if we're not struggling, something isn't right. Yeah. And learning to struggle is, I think, essential to life. We somehow have this world where we, we are creating all these technologies so everything will be done for us or, or made it easy yeah. for us. I'm not against yeah. that. <laughs> I love them myself, including my lawnmower. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, you know, it's a struggle sometimes with the lawnmower. <laughs> and it, uh-huh. You know, uh, when, we're, when we come out of uh, our mother's womb, we struggle to breathe. We struggle to move. We struggle to figure out what the fuck is going on, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I don't think it changes much. Nope. <laughs> the, 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 the terms and the surroundings change, but I think it's okay. I think that's good. I think that yeah. makes life worth it. It makes it feel yeah. good and real. Yeah. You know, it also yeah. sometimes makes it feel really bad and unreal. Yeah. But I think struggle is the word that today's discussion brings forth now that mm. you asked. Mm. Steve, thank you so much. It's been a very rich time to, to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to see you again, Roy. And thank you for spending this time with me. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.